This is the Author Archive podcast. Uh, Today, a guest, Simon Cooper, whose book Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tourists Took Over the UK, took my breath away. When you finished writing this, Simon, what was the effect on your emotional and nervous system? I tried to write it in a cool way without anger and just let the story tell itself without emotion. But I have heard from many people that the book made them very angry or people said they were reluctant to read it for fear of making them angry. But I, I tried to write a cool book. Right. I mean, yes, I, I kept through it without um, medical help. But from time to time, um, it was it was close. Now, you were at Oxford at the same time as these guys. Um, same time or just after. So I arrived in 1988. Uh, Boris Johnson and actually Keir Starmer had left Oxford in 87. Cameron and Gove left in 88. And I arrived the same day as Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, um, you know, is the college a couple of hundred yards from me. So I remembered him, you know, parading around like an 18-year-old Victorian vicar with his double-breasted <laughs> suit and his umbrella. And Dan Hanan, who became the really significant sort of Karl Marx of Brexit, the thinker of Brexit, and Dominic Cummings arrived towards the end of my time there. Um, what amazed me was I thought further education was about learning things, learning stuff so that you could improve the society that you find yourself in. But for these guys, it didn't seem to be that. It seemed to be just self-aggrandizement. I wonder whether they would say they weren't learning. I mean, certainly academia was optional at Oxford in the 80s. And Boris Johnson, in the words of his tutor rubbed along on no hours a week of work. Um, Johnson's girlfriend at the time wrote that four hours a week was enough in the art subjects. So it wasn't um, for everyone or for most people about knuckling down and, and working hard. I mean, Rees Mogg, who very kindly gave me an interview for the book, told me that just before his finals was the only time he really concentrated more on history than on the, the politics of Oxford University and trying to become president of the Oxford Union, the debating society. That's where a lot of these guys spent their time, the Oxford Union. Um, just um, a sort of side note. If you talk to Jacob Rees-Mogg, is he always in character? Is that who he is now? I think so. And I think in character is a good description I think that like Boris Johnson, very early on, he developed a kind of cartoon brand, a version of himself. And eventually that becomes who you are. You're always doing that. You're always playing that. And the kind of mask sets in place. And it's, it is a version of who they are. I mean, I would also say that when I spoke to him, which was by Zoom, I mean, I ended up doing almost all the interviews for the book on Zoom because of the pandemic. He was very friendly and available. I, I, I hear also from uh, people who know him, he's a nice person, um, Dan Hanan, similarly, we had a very interesting hour-long conversation where Hanan was fully aware that, you know, I'm not on his side. But I tried not to sort of come in with, with boots and studs up, as it were. <laughs> I tried to listen to people and hear them and understand how they saw the world. Now, who are we talking about? How a tiny cast of Oxford Tories. Who's at the centre? Who's the colonel? Look, I mean, the whole political elite, almost to a person today, 
comes from Oxford. So that, that includes uh, Keir Starmer and Yvette Cooper. On the Labour side, it includes Remainers like Cameron and Osborne. And then the focus of my book is really the Brexiteers, the Oxford Brexiteers who used Farage and then ditched him. He was never their friend and there was always a lot of irritation between the groups, but they needed Farage to win the referendum. But there was no way Farage could have won the referendum without them. So the people who are at the centre of the book are really uh, Boris Johnson, who's not so much the colonel, I would say the president. Um, Michael Gove, who you could call the colonel. And uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dan Hanan, who is the thinker of the bunch, and Dominic Cummings, who is the communications orchestrator, or was until he fell out with them. Now, okay, so they are this small group in Oxford, and I was just a mile away working in Oxford at the time, and I had no idea. It didn't sort of stretch out, even up the Banbury Road. So at what point did this thinking sort of jump into the outside world? Well, I mean, they don't all know each other at the time. So Johnson and Gove are close, and Gove is a kind of, describes himself as a votary of the Boris cult from the age of 18, where, you know, Boris Johnson is the most charismatic member of the union, becomes president. Um, Toby Young early becomes a journalistic supporter. So, you know, they're, they're slightly different generations and then they're not, not all on the same side. So Cameron and Johnson, of course, know each other well at Oxford and been to school together, but never, never really friends. It starts to crystallize. I mean, they always know they're all going to go to Westminster and rule the country. That's what they've really expected from age eight. And so Rees-Mogg, who is a bit later than Johnson, is exactly uh, a member of the same tribe, the, the ruling caste, I call it in the book, and that they are bound, they're destined to meet each other. I think the big idea starts to arrive. It's about three weeks before Rees-Mogg and I start university. In 1988, Margaret Thatcher gives her Bruce speech, where she shifts from being a pro-European and has helped construct the European single market to saying, actually, Brussels is going to take the powers of Westminster. She warns against the European superstate. And for these men, that's a really galvanizing moment because they are going to rule the UK. That's what their grandfathers and fathers did. That's what, you know, having been to public school in Oxford, they're destined to. And so the idea that Brussels bureaucrats, in their mind, are going to usurp some of their powers is a personal threat. They take it very seriously, are very upset. Sovereignty really means a lot to them because sovereignty is personal and it's also their cast. So I would say the Bruce speech is the moment where Euroscepticism starts to infect these people. Uh, Dan Hanan at Oxford creates the Oxford campaign for an independent Britain with a couple of friends, including Mark Reckless, the future UKIP MP, becomes a kind of forerunner of Brexit. And Patrick Robertson, little known, but a second year history student at Oxford in 1989, I think, founds the Bruce Group which becomes a very dominant Eurosceptic enterprise over the next 25 years. Okay, I can understand if you're born to rule, if someone else comes in and um, it rather puts you in a bad position from uh, realising your destiny. But how did they jump from, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm an enthusiastic European. I love uh, going to Europe. I am a passionate Remainer. How come people like me, were fired up to think that sovereignty was the thing that we should fight for. Because I don't think you expected to personally exercise British sovereignty. 
No. I don't think that you thought you were going to be a, a cabinet minister or maybe live on Downing Street. And they did. And they thought that from age eight. And they were right to think that because if you're an Eton and Oxford man in that time, the route to Downing Street was very short. And, you know, so Boris Johnson, you know, he writes about looking at the photograph of Harold Macmillan at the Oxford Union. Macmillan had been treasurer of the Oxford Union just before going off to World War I. And, you know, if you're Johnson and you see Macmillan, who, like you, Eton, does classics at Balliol College, Oxford, and, you you know, similar sort of background, you think, if he, then why not me? And so sovereignty for them is not just national, it's personal. But there doesn't seem to be anything in their souls and minds about, I've got to do this because this will make the life of the people down the street, the poorer folks, the ones who go to the comprehensive, it will make their life better. That seems to be irrelevant. They've never really met those people. I mean, their (laughs) passage through life had taken them from prep school to medieval boarding school to medieval Oxford and then on to Westminster. Now that's a big difference with, I mean, I I talk in the book about the sort of public school in Oxford men who then went to fight in World War I and then came back and became politicians. So there's Clement Attlee, Macmillan, Anthony Eden, all, you know, saw terrible scenes in World War I, enlisted, and as junior officers, because that's what men of that class became, they became lieutenants and captains, you were responsible for the working class privates, you know, under your command. When they died, you wrote letters to their mother. So in the trenches, you really got, I mean, I'm not trying to glamorize it, obviously the worst periods of British history, but it was a time of one nation, perhaps unprecedented in British history. In the trenches, there was one nation. So Macmillan writes that he could never have met men of that class without World War I. And for the rest of his life, he feels a kind of responsibility, as do Attlee and Eden. And so when the war veterans come back, they rule, Britain is ruled between 1940 and 1979, almost continuously, by men who have volunteered for the front in one of the world wars. I think Harold Wilson was the only prime minister in that period who didn't go to the front. And so these people had a very strong sense of one nation. So Britain becomes a sort of social democracy, high levels of equality. I think in 1979, it's the second most equal European country by incomes after Sweden. And that's partly the legacy of world wars that, you know, we're all, we're all in this together was a real thing for people of that generation. And then Thatcher comes in, you know, the first prime minister, I think, to have reached adulthood post-World War II. And that doesn't really mean anything to her. So she presides over the Oxford of the 80s that I described. And there's so there's no idealism. There's no, and, and there isn't an, even an idealism to serving the truth. You, you point out that these guys will say anything. I think the thing they most genuinely believe in is the Britain of the past and British grandeur of the past. And they genuinely feel attached to that, emotional about that. They, they really care about old buildings, um, old English landscapes, let's say the centre of Oxford rather than the outskirts of Oxford, which you know, which are quite ugly in post-war. They, um, that's the Britain they treasure. And they treasure the achievements of the kind of boarding school and Oxbridge ruling caste. And, you know, from their point of view, men of that, boarding school cars. So that's 
let's say less than 1% of the British population, about 1% goes to boarding school, are really astonishing. You know, this is the caste that rule, presides over empire, that helps win two world wars, that helps invent the computer with Alan Turing, invents television, uh, writes 1984 and Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. And that they feel very proud of and very attached to, and they feel it's rightful that English toffs like themselves should rule and should sit at the top of the human totem pole, as it were. And so they, that, I think, is a genuine belief they have. Okay, and you describe them as toffs. Would they be happy with that description? They use often this weasel word, middle class, which is very odd because, as I say, uh, 1% of the population goes to boarding school. As 7% goes to private school, but 1% boards. So the boarding school cast I, I see as more or less uh, the same as the traditional, mostly hereditary ruling class, which lets in some upper middle class strivers like the Johnsons. And so Johnson and Gove, I both find references in their Oxford writings where they describe themselves and their group as middle class private school. Of course, middle class and private school are not the same. So when you're writing about this and they achieve what they want to achieve, they get themselves to the top of the greasy pole in Westminster. And is there a feeling in your soul after writing this? Then they look at each other and say, well, now what? I think they, they had a lot of now what in their political careers because their heroine was Thatcher. But Thatcher is a very rare politician who actually sort of completed her project. She uh, cut taxes ruthlessly, she privatized, she closed the mines. And by the time she was done after 11 years, there really wasn't much more you could do in those directions if Britain is going to remain a sort of recognizable Western country. And so what are you going to do? You know, Thatcher's completed a revolution. The Soviet Union has collapsed, the, the enemy. And so they were casting around a long time for what is going to be our project. And Blair was very uh, popular and successful. They were irrelevant. And then, you know, Hanan has been pushing Brexit for 25 years. And then when Cameron calls the referendum for a set of private reasons, but also the allure of doing something grand, having a grand project for their generation that would help them go down in history that would be as sort of big as the uh, projects of their grandfathers with empire and world wars. Brexit was their shot at it and not, you know, they were very frustrated at Britain's role as a kind of middling European power, kind of offshore island, not hugely successful. And ministers always in the Eurostar, were in the Eurostar going to meetings in the horrible, ugly European quarter of Brussels, listening to the Latvian minister bang on about plastic bag regulations. That, that they were fed up. So in America, you had Make America Great Again. This, these guys really wanted to make England great again. Um, and this was, but it was going backwards. I just wonder, I mean, I was listening to the news before I spoke to you uh, that in India, there's uh, temperatures of 51, 52 degrees, you know, and we've got, um, we've got inflation running at 9%. They don't seem to have... Um, a toolkit to deal with the world. Johnson has never had a toolkit. He was never a man of policy. And I don't think he has this kind of secret plan to drag Britain to the right to uh, be more Thatcherite than Thatcher. I don't think he particularly cares about that. 
he's not a man with a toolkit. He's a man with, of words. And he's a comedic performer. And so he, he craves power. He's a very hard worker in quest for power. He's always out there being, you know, playing his act, uh, <laughs> trying to uh, gain popularity, win elections, which he's very good at. And what he actually does with that power, you know, from the Oxford Union on has never really interested him very much. And so, you know, these are extremely hard times. But it's not like they have a big low tax project. In fact, the tax burden in Britain is the highest in 70 years. I think Johnson is a man, you know, without qualities, without ideology. Uh, he has a kind of instinctive attachment to the past. He mocks any complicated ideas. But he's, um, he's a comedian who has accidentally been given a, another job. And is that why he likes to be on the news every night wearing a hard hat, wearing um, some work gear, doing something which he's obviously incompetent at? Is it just to get a picture on the front page of the Daily Mail? Is that what keeps him going? Well, he's a front man. I mean, what keeps him going, I think, is the desire for power. And, you know, I think Johnson was a bright teenager. And at the age of 15, he thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm clever. I can read books and understand books. But there are other people who do that just as well as me, many people. So Michael Gove is more clever than Johnson. But Johnson realized what I can do that other people can't is be the comedian, the front of stage man, you know, making these, playing this kind of Bercy Worcester figure. And that's immensely appealing. So that's what I'm going to do. And then I'll find people, boring people, who can kind <laughs> of uh, read the thick report. I mean, I heard from a, another European prime minister was told me by somebody who's spoken to this prime minister uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, who said, I think you can't really have an argument or discussion with Johnson, he said, because he hasn't read the file. He doesn't really know any of the details of the subject you're talking about. So all he can do is kind of make noises. And so I think that to look for uh, a plan from Johnson is, is to look for something that he's never really tried to do. I mean, the comedic act doesn't work so well as prime minister because people expect more from a prime minister. So, so uh, as we think, uh, and people look at him and say, we've got trouble with Northern Ireland, but you signed it. He, he did sign it, but he, that was irrelevant, really. He didn't maybe read it. No, I mean, he has always had, because of his charisma and because there's this natural English instinct, I think, to gravitate around an Etonian, to elevate the Etonian to the top of the totem pole, he's always had clever people around him to whom he's handed off those things. And, you know, mayor of London doesn't have much power, so it didn't really matter. He's never really had important power before. You know, as foreign secretary, he, he was in a position of power and generally is believed not to have, you know, not to have used it well. He, he's not equipped to run anything, but he always thought, well, I have other people to do that and I can perform the leader. You're a journalist on the FT. If you put your journalist hat on and you scan the distant horizon, where does this leave us? I mean, there was a graphic in the FT today in Martin Wolf's column on Brexit, which shows that Britain has the lowest growth rate of the major Western economies since 2015, even growing more slowly economically than Italy and much more slowly than the USA. So I think where this leaves us is, you know, Johnson... And the cast I describe in the book has remade the UK and is going to generally make the UK a less successful country.
but it's not apocalypse. I mean, that's sort of a big difference between Britain and Poland because because of where Britain is geographically, you know, it's surrounded by seas, it's been a very stable country. There's been no invasion or revolution or civil war or famine in about 350 years. It will, the decline will be um, non, non-dramatic, will hurt people at the bottom most. We're already seeing that. But, you know, sometimes we Remainers like to sketch apocalyptic visions of the UK, and I don't think it's going to come to that. Um, you know, the, the contrast with Poland, if, you're, if your neighbour is Russia, you can't afford to take risks. I think Johnson and Gove and the others realised that Brexit was a risk, but they thought, what's the worst that can happen? Our class always comes through it unscathed, and Britain doesn't have any natural predators. You know, if, if you're... Most hostile enemy is France, where you have arguments about fishing rights. That's not a big problem. (laughs) But we seem to be in a position now where those of us who are Remainers, we become social outcasts, if we confess this. It's almost become like a religion that you have to, at best, just keep quiet about it. Well, I mean, in polls, almost consistently, pretty almost universally since about 2017 remain has won for what it's worth so a majority of the british population believes that remain is the correct solution also a majority of the british population believe that it was fair play so you do brexit even though most people believe it was wrong because it had been voted for some something called brexit had been voted for uh, i think that a lot of people on both remain and leave signs just don't want to hear anything more about it. It's just upsetting. It's negative. It has, we Remainers hate it, and the Leavers are often disappointed because it hasn't brought them what they hoped for. So I saw that in Britain in 2021, there were more Google searches for Aston Villa Football Club than for Brexit. <laughs> right at the end of the book, there's a chapter on, okay, this isn't so good. What should we do? And you, you're suggesting, really, that the way Oxford works and Eton works be reassessed in some way and rebuilt. But that's going to take a while, Simon. I want some change now. I mean, to give credit to Oxford, there is change now. So the uh, percentage of state school pupils admitted last year uh, at undergraduate was 68%, which I think is the highest in Oxford's recorded history. So these, all these British institutions are under a lot of pressure from this sort of anti-elitism, from diversity movements. So whether it's from Black Lives Matter or from Me Too or from Brexit, which also had a lot of anti-elitist impulses, places like Oxbridge and the BBC and the Civil Service Bill, we have to change. We just can't you know, keep making this a private school in Oxbridge province. And so I distrust Oxbridge's ability to reform itself and a lot of the state school people they're admitting are from leafy state schools, you know, state grammars in Buckingham, mm-hmm. sort of thing. But it is changing. I would like to see Oxbridge for all, where these universities stop teaching undergraduates. Who, often the education is wasted on 18-year-olds who are not always in the right place to focus on that and who are admitted from a tiny, tiny section of British society. I would say, you know, you're 37 years old. You didn't go to university the first time around because of where you came from or because your head wasn't in the right place then, but you're very bright, you're very interested. Come to Oxford for two months, two years, whatever it is, and Oxford will give you a course with some excellent 
teachers that will change your life and that you're really, really ready for. I'd love to see the undoubted excellence spread more broadly. Your chums. Um, I, mean, I My heart sinks when I see the level of ignorance about basic science stuff, which I think we've got to look at now or else the species will will end up having a really bad time. What did they all study? And in your forward-looking view, what should they study? The people I described, Johnson studied classics, uh, Rees Mogg and Hanan studied history, uh, Cummings studied a kind of mix of that. Michael Gove studied English, which was really mostly the canon. So they studied backward-looking subjects. And, you know, these are fantastically interesting topics. And I myself studied history and German. So I'm not exempt from this, but the ignorance of science is shocking, especially in England, where if you're gonna do an arts subject at university, typically you drop all science and maths age 16. And then you have to run the country where, as you say, key issues are climate change, scientific issue, COVID, nuclear, oh, should we go nuclear? And these people have had no training in that. And I really think that's, that's just a terrible shame. I would love to see a rebalancing of Oxford towards those kinds of subjects and also towards science and maths. It's a very thought-inducing book, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. It could make you very cross and slightly depressed. Simon Cooper, thank you very much.